0: I'm Michael Calorian. You're listening to The Gadget Lab, a podcast about the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Ariel Pardes. Hello. Lauren Good is off this week. She's on vacation snorkeling in the Alps, eating tacos, I don't know. Doing something fun and memorable, I'm sure.
1: We miss her. We do. We miss her. Well, instead of our usual programming this week, we're going to be joined by a special guest. We have freelance war correspondent Kenneth Rosen. Ken is working on a series of stories for Wired about the reconstruction efforts in Syria. And the first of those stories, The Body Pullers of Syria, published earlier this week on Wired.com.
0: It's a fascinating story. Beautifully written
1: heart-wrenching yeah but but fascinating
0: very human story mm-hmm. so I talked to Ken about how he does his job the, the tools that he uses to report the stories of the men and the women rebuilding the war-torn cities in the Mideast uh, the methods that he uses to stay safe in the field and all of that great stuff
1: But first, we have a bit of housekeeping. Mike, tell the good people how they can get a subscription to Wired for super cheap.
0: Yes, indeed. Just for you, our faithful listeners, we have put together a special offer that you can redeem at wired.com slash flash sale. The offer lets you buy one year of Wired for $5, which is 50% off our standard subscription price. You can choose to get the print magazine mailed to you and full access to the website or just the digital only plan without the magazine both are only five dollars each for the first year don't miss out
1: do you know what else you can get for five dollars what nothing (laughs) you can't even get a cup of coffee for five dollars in this day and age sure you
0: can i mean if it's not fancy coffee
1: oh i only drink fancy coffee
0: i'm sure you do well you're extra fancy
1: i am extra fancy well if you would also like to be extra fancy subscribe to wired It will provide all the fodder for your dinner party conversations. It will provide all the entertainment you need on your long train rides.
0: (laughs) Make you you seem smart.
1: Uh, It will make you seem smart, even if you're not.
0: (laughs) Wired.com slash flash sale.
1: All right. Now let's hear Mike in conversation with Ken Rosen.
0: Ken Rosen, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, this week, Wired published a story that you reported in Raqqa, the city in northern Syria that was occupied by the Islamic State and served as the group's de facto capital for four or five years. The city was basically ruined by the conflict there. Thousands of people died. Raqqa was liberated at the end of 2017, and as part of the continuing reconstruction efforts there, workers have been going around the city, digging up the many mass graves that are a result of the fighting. Civilians and fighters alike, ISIS or not, women and children, all were buried rather sloppily and hastily with pretty much zero documentation. Now these workers are locating the graves, pulling the bodies out, doing their best to identify the remains, and entering all the details into a database. After the bodies are logged... They're reburied permanently and more respectfully elsewhere, away from the city grounds and the farmlands where they've been for the past few years. Now, it's striking to hear stories like these, and both your reporting and the writing in this story are excellent and really vivid, so thank you for that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I, I appreciate it. I, um, I really had a lot of help on, the, uh, on Conde Nast's end, and, and my editors at Wired, Sarah Fallon, was super supportive and and was there with me the whole way, and um, Andrea DiCenzo, the photographer with the story, really helped me navigate a situation that um, was, was more complicated than I think we we had first anticipated.
0: That's, that's interesting because that's actually relates to my first question. Um, I assume that these men have pretty dangerous jobs digging in places where there's maybe unexploded ordnance in the ground or hiding amongst the graves. Uh, is it a dangerous scene?
2: So generally speaking, it could be. I think the Islamic State was known for booby-trapping graves of who they considered to be infidels against the caliphate. But a lot of these graves um, that we explored were for former ISIS fighters. And so the risk was much lower. But there's always a chance for unexploded ordinances uh, to crop up anywhere in a, in a place such as Raqqa. And um, I did speak with State Department officials whose jobs were um, solely focused on finding these unexploded ordinances. And, and, and many of them were found in former holdouts of, of the Islamic State. And, and many of those were too also um mass graves. But these men in particular hadn't come across anything like that, though I did ask them uh, when we first met. They sort of were already into their daily routine of of getting to the site and, and setting out to work after having their tea and um, digging up the bodies one by one before um, reburying them elsewhere.
0: And what about the reporting? Um, you've won an award for your work as a war correspondent, and you've covered conflicts in the East extensively. Uh, how would you describe the dangers of your job in general and of this particular project?
2: I think the biggest issue for me, I don't want to speak for other correspondents writ large, but for me, it's always getting too complacent and too comfortable. Uh, Over the last three years, I've been to the region on several reporting trips for several magazines and um, find that I'm getting more and more comfortable every time I go. And that's always very troublesome to me. It means my guard is down more frequently and I'm sort of just along for the ride rather than being more cautious and and more focused on um, making sure the team is okay and and prepared for the reporting. Um, But with that said, with support from my editor and 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 from uh people back in new york and uh san francisco and to say nothing of the the fixers and the translators who worked with me in both uh northern iraq and kurdistan and and rojava and syria um without their expertise and, and knowing the region better than i could they really uh they protect us more than than any sort of uh planning going into it.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the tools that you use to report the story. Um, One of your editors here, my brilliant colleague, Sarah Fallon, sent over some photos that you took of all the things that you packed for this trip. It was one of those pictures where you shoot it from overhead and it shows everything laid out in a grid. There's a word for that style of photograph. I can't remember what it's called. Do you remember what it's called?
2: Uh, it's, a, a, it's a packing grid, right?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, but there's like a funny word for it. Um,
2: I, I'm not, that's, that's, that's beyond our, our knowledge that and our pay grade, I think.
0: <laughs> well, check out the Instagram tag, I guess. Um, so, okay. I'm a technology reporter. I rarely venture outside of California. Most of this is new to me. And the most striking thing in the photo for me was the flak jacket. It's black and it's bulky. It has the word press written on it in huge letters, both in English and in Arabic. What can you tell me about it?
2: So I wanted to first say that that, um, some of the challenges of reporting come with um, maintaining communication with, say, my editors back in San Francisco or elsewhere. And what keeps me most safe, or at least making me feel safe, is is, is that continued communication. So a lot of the things that I do carry with me are um, technological in nature um, and battery supported. Um, The flak jacket is not one of those things. It's sort of an idea of security. I can't tell you how many times I carry that thing with me and never have an opportunity to use it. Um, There seems to be an unspoken understanding of when to wear it and when not to wear it. Um, It's there for making me feel safe in the event that I would need it. Um, which is really the crux of a lot of the things that I carry, right? I mean, I want to feel like I can reach back to Sarah, um, if I need to at a moment's notice. So whether that be through texting or WhatsApping or wifi or satellite phone, I want to be sure to be able to get a note out to her as quick as possible. And maybe I won't need all that stuff that I brought with me, but it's the idea of knowing that whatever may happen, I, whatever may come, I can sort of take care of that and send it off as quick as possible. So the same thing applies to the right. flak jacket. may not need it all the time, but I know that I have it in case I need it.
0: Well, let's talk about your phones and connectivity. Uh, I see a lot of devices in these photos, and we'll make these photos available so that people listening can, can look at them and sort of zoom in on stuff. Um, but uh, tell me about your phones and your connectivity situation. How do you stay connected when you're over there, and what's it like as far as networks in different areas?
2: So I travel with a Galaxy S8 Duo from uh, the UK. It's got dual SIM cards so I can run a AT&T card for when I'm uh, at home and also while I'm at, abroad, but also switch to a local SIM card. So say if I'm in uh, northern Iraq, I can switch out into a Korek SIM card and, and use that to make local phone calls. But the networks in northern Iraq are pretty good and elsewhere uh, throughout the country. It's when you go into Syria, it sort of it dwindles very quickly and it feels very much like you're entering a black hole. So long as you stay along the northern border, you sort of can piggyback off of um, the Turkcell network. So I can use my AT&T SIM at that point, but if I travel farther south, um, I start to rely on Wi-Fi networks that the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, the uh, American-backed Kurdish forces, um, have supplied for their bases. But beyond that, I traveled with um, an Iridium satellite phone, which also worked as a as a, as a Wi-Fi Ethernet hookup uh, for my laptop. So when in doubt, I could always hook up to the satellite phone and, and piggyback my computer off of that uh, to send a quick note back to... San Francisco.
0: Do you also carry a camera?
2: I rely on my Galaxy. I'm not much of a photographer, but for this stories, uh, for these several stories that I did for Wired um, in January and February, I was asked to provide some social media footage, and I feel like the Galaxy was really good at capturing high-quality uh, video and photography for that purpose. But otherwise, I just leave the professional photography to the professional photographers, who are much better at it than I am. <laughs>
0: and we love them for it. Um, I also see in your photo three voice recorders. Now, that's either like a good reporting fail-safe strategy. So if one breaks, you always have a backup. But it might also just be because you fill them all up so frequently.
2: No, you know, I wish I did that many interviews. I carry a 32-gig mini-SIM for... For each of them, I think. There might be one in each, so there's way more memory than I actually need. And when Sarah asked me, my editor asked me about why I carry three, it's just simply I'm neurotic. You never know, right? I mean, these things break all the time. Batteries might die in one, and then you have to switch to the other. I know plenty of reporters who don't carry, you know, three recorders, but I just... I don't want to be in the middle of nowhere trying to record on my phone and have that die and then have my other failsafe die. So um, this really just comes back to the safety question, right? I mean, having more options makes me feel safer and makes me less worried about, oh, did I leave that in the hotel room? Or, oh, did I leave that in the back of a Jeep? Because it wouldn't really matter if I had two others. Um, maybe it's irresponsible of me, but I'd, just, I'd rather hedge my bets than, than rely too heavily on one thing.
0: Um, speaking of safety... Your first aid kit looks pretty standard, maybe a bit more robust than anything I've seen for, like, camping in the Sierras, but it does look pretty standard. Uh, Is it? Is there anything special in there?
2: There's – so I carry two. I carry just sort of a general hygiene med kit, toothbrush, toothpaste, acne cream, all the good stuff. Um, And then I carry a trauma first aid kit, which was assembled by the team over at Global Journalist Security they uh, included sort of things like quick clot and uh, trauma shears, um, anything for sort of ballistic wounds that uh, would need tending to on in, in a battlefield or um, active conflicts on similar to Syria or Iraq. But thankfully, I've never had to use any of it. And um, hopefully it'll remain that way.
0: Um, you also carry a gas mask and some chemical agent exposure wipes. Um, that's something that I'm sure is probably pretty standard for just about anybody working in that in that region, right?
2: So the gas masks would probably be very common, especially for photojournalists who are um, in areas where there's tear gas or uh, heavy smoke. I was talking to my wife before I left for this trip and... She and I had agreed that since the regime had been known to use chemical agents in the past, that it wouldn't be too crazy to bring some extra um, chemical weapon gear. Um, just, again, to be extra cautious out of uh, extreme caution, not, um, you know, exact need. But um, I also brought some uh, chemical agent wipes so if there were an instance when um, something would land on your skin or my fixer or interpreter skin that might have been a chemical agent then we could have easily wiped it off and not have to worry about desalinating any skin or rushing to a sink somewhere and have uh, have everything we need right with us again feeling more safe in just the pack rather than um, needing to X, you know exfil X somewhere else
0: uh, aside from your passport what other documents do you usually have to carry with you
2: So I do, actually, a fun fact, I carry two passports. Journalists in the U.S. are often granted two passports by the State Department in order to travel freely through uh, countries that don't often cross-honor different stamps. So I have two different passports, and then I travel with um, my paperwork from Wired or the magazine that I'm writing for, um, sort of the assignment letter, and um, my accreditation for different journalistic Uh, organizations, such as the Frontline Freelance Register, or um, the Society for Professional Journalists, or the uh, Overseas Press Club of America, Um, and then I have different permission slips through, say, the border crossing security, and then when you're in the country, I have uh, different press accreditation from the different factions or militias that I'm traveling with. Um, each one has their own sort of hierarchy and different paper slips that I can never read, but I carry them because my fixer can read them and um, uses them to get through checkpoints and um, into certain areas that might otherwise be cordoned off to um, the public.
0: So all of the stuff that you have goes into the, this giant bag, and it looks like something you carry on your back. How much, how much weight are we talking about you're carrying around?
2: I think I think surprisingly it was under under I want to say under what is 20 I don't know what's the conversion for 20 kilos
0: It's like know. roughly it's roughly 2 pounds per kilo so that'd be about 40 40 a little over 40
2: pounds. Uh, then it's not that much. I mean it was, you know, maybe under 15 kilos I think cuz I can get it onto a plane um, with no problem. Um, it's really not that heavy. I most of this stuff is is the bulk of everything i carry and then i have you know two t-shirts and a pair of jeans um and a sweater and a jacket <laughs> so um it's all pretty lightweight and it's designed for this sort of travel or you know or prepper travel i guess it could be also noted as other well, uh, the types of people that would uh g- gather all this stuff up um so it's not that heavy and again it's like it's for security and, and it makes me feel safe and makes me feel better and um, you know I carried a bunch of um, I carry a bunch of hand sanitizer and sometimes snack bars like um, like uh, cliff bars or little energy drinks and reporting in different countries people need you know to, to wash their hands but can't get the soap and i have hand sanitizer and that makes people feel a little bit more comfortable and it makes me feel you know a little bit better and clean and just these little things that are it may seem like they're heavy but they really just alleviate so much stress and pain and and comfort is, is is number one to to feeling um feeling okay when doing uh reporting out in these these sort of dicey places
0: um well do you also have like a day bag or does everything go with you all the time
2: I have everything with me at all times just because, again, extra neurotic. I don't want anyone to touch my bag when I'm not present or have any sort of uh, agency over my gear or um, equipment when I'm not around it. So everything goes with me everywhere, even if I don't need it. Um, Rare is it for me to leave anything in in a hotel room or uh, behind a a hotel desk. So it's just always on my person. It's more an extension of my body than, than just some silly gear I carry around with me.
0: I have a deep nerd question. As far as notebooks go, are you a moleskin guy or are you a field notes guy?
2: Moleskin, baby. That's
0: right. Good answer. <laughs> Thank
2: you. But I go, I go, see, I go grid. I do the gridded paper. Other people do lined. And I feel like that's too constricting. And, and I want to go vertical and horizontal. So I have to choose the grid.
0: I'm, I'm a blank page man myself. but so only you're because a, free sometimes I, a free
2: thinker. A free thinker.
0: yes. Yes. Yeah. Other people would disagree with you, but I fully agree with you. I am a free thinker. Oh,
2: no. <laughs> I don't know you well enough, man. I, I, that's off the record.
0: <laughs> uh, well, Ken, thanks for coming on the show and, and talking about how you do what you do. Um, your story that's up right now is called The Body Pullers of Syria, and everybody can read it right now on Wired.com. Uh, what are the next stories coming out?
2: We have two more stories coming out. Uh, one publishing next week, and then hopefully the third a week after that. But the last one's sort of tentative. But you can look out for the next one sometime later next week.
0: Awesome! And people can find you on Twitter at Kenneth underscore Rosen. Yes. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a great follow. Thanks again for coming on the show, Ken.
2: Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
0: We hope you enjoyed that interview. Team Moleskin all the way.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Full on
0: Moleskin all the time. We have one last thing to tell you about before we go. As you may know, Wired is part of the Condé Nast Media family. We're a big company with many publications, titles that you love, like Vogue, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair. And occasionally, we'd love to take the opportunity to tell you about some of the great podcasts being produced by our siblings. This week, we want to tell you guys about Little Gold Men. The award season podcast from Vanity Fair. The Oscars may be over and the Emmys may not be until September, but in Hollywood, award season is a year round event. Why else would so many great TV shows suddenly be premiering in April? Or so many movie stars getting ready to fly to Cannes? Each week, the team of Mike Hogan, Richard Lawson, Katie Rich, and Joanna Robinson discussed the ups and downs of awards races and the big topics in Hollywood that week, from the much-hyped final season of Game of Thrones to the extremely early 2020 Oscar predictions. Award shows may be one night only, but the process of getting there is a year-round event, and Little Gold Men explains the campaigning, the favoritism, and the occasional dirty tricks that everyone endures in order to get to stand on that stage and hold that statue. Subscribe to Little Gold Men on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for this week on the Gadget Lab. Thank you for listening. Arielle, how do the people find you on the Twitter?
1: You can find me at Pardesoteric.
0: I am at Snackfight.
1: We are all at Gadget Lab.
0: And we check it regularly. Like, I stay up at night refreshing the feed on the at Gadget Lab Twitter feed. Oh, it's no. one
1: of the few things we live for.
0: <laughs> Not really. Uh, but thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.